Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. We are sitting here at the Data Protection Summit, and I just came from a fabulous keynote by Rick D'Angona, who is the CSO Information Security Officer for Experian. As you're sitting here listening, you might remember that Experian is one of the three major credit reporting agencies that has a tremendous amount of information about you, all of your information regarding your personal information and your financial information. And so this is really a challenging job for him. So let me tell you a little bit about his background. Rick D'Angona is Chief Information Security Officer for Experian Americas. Rick has overall responsibility for information security strategies across Experian business units. He works to bridge the gap between the technical aspects of information security and executive management by providing guidance on best practice compliance controls as a way to support corporate objectives. He has a tremendous background of 25 years experience in information systems management application development and design, and now is meeting the significant challenge of providing security solutions for Experian. You can find out more about him on our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy, and you can go to Experian.com. Rick, you did a fabulous, really very informative and very organized, by the way, uh, keynote just now on all the important aspects of security. Why don't you tell us about the seven questions that you presented, because I thought that was really terrific, and uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. Really appreciate all the positive feedback. All right, yeah, it was fun. What I wanted to share with the audience and what I can repeat uh, for you right now, for your listeners, is uh, the area of my presentation that dealt with how do you know when your information security program is good enough? Because there's so much that comes out in the press and there's so much pressure from vendors and clients to implement the state-of-the-art, the the best processes you possibly can and have the best products in-house. 
Right, and that's so important because we've heard about literally millions of data that has been breached since 2005. And, you know, the major credit reporting agencies has a lot of data. So, you know, you are really on the hook with all of the regulators. So you guys really have lead the whole group about how to really do it right. So tell us about these questions that you need to ask. The first question I asked the audience was, how does your data protection strategy support or inhibit innovation? And as we know, without innovation and transformation in a business environment, your product offerings stagnate a right. bit. So you have to be constantly trying to improve your, your business. But with that improvement, most often it's accompanied by technology improvements or enhancements. We talked about a little, a little bit about how Blackberries and USB drives, for example, have now entered the business community. Even even cell phones cell have phones. tremendous stuff and the PDAs and the Blackberries you were talking about. Yeah, that's scary though when you think about what your employees could download. What do you do about security about all these millions of tiny devices that carry tremendous amount of information? What can you do? Well, our approach and I'm, sh I'm not really speaking on behalf of all companies, but our perspective on that is we need to, as a security organization, support these innovations as best we can. So we try to balance an innovative concept or transformative business process with the security controls that right. need to be in place to keep everything safe and keep the data safe. So, so how, how do you do some of that? Like when people have the little USB plugs, I mean, what do you do? Because they could take tons of databases away, couldn't they? There's several ways to protect data, for example, that would go to a USB drive. Our approach, and I think the preferred approach, is to follow the data, protect the data itself, make sure that confidential or restricted data is encrypted right? so that no matter where it lands, it can't be unlocked unless you have the keys to unlock it. Smart, because not all companies do encrypt. A lot of companies don't encrypt, but also you have to be sensible about what you're encrypting. Right. I think my next question points out that is your data classified as public, private, or confidential? If you don't deal with confidential or restricted data on a regular basis, then you probably don't have to worry too much about encryption. But I would venture to say most every company has some data that they would label confidential or restricted, even if that data is only about their own employees. Right. And you brought up a really important point toward the end. You said all of us who work for companies also worry a little bit because our data is in the HR department. So not only do we want to be secure for our customers, our outside customers, but we want to be secure for our inside customers, too. That was important. That's very important. I think people need to take responsibility for protecting themselves as yes. well as protecting the companies they work for. Right. So you, you have a lot of things that you want to protect besides the database and the personal information. You have secrets of the company and, and their own trademarks and stuff like that. So that's important to classify. And I think that's one thing I see that a lot of companies just put everything in the same database without classifying and segregating. So you know, like personal sensitive information, you encrypt, but then that other stuff, you don't need to do that. Yeah, you just have to be selective because it could be overwhelming for a company yeah. if they really believe they needed to take drastic measures for every piece of data they collect. Right. So you do have to put some sensibility around the program. Okay. Uh, the, the third topic I raised, I think, was around regulations. The question I posed to the audience was, how well are you complying with government regulations and industry standards? And uh, most of the people in the audience knew that there were 39 states who have disclosure laws that, in many cases, resemble each other. Right, like the security breach notification that we have here in California. Absolutely. And really, uh, most 
people credit the California law with being the one that they like to emulate. Yeah, we were the first one. And basically, the fail-safe is if you encrypt, you don't have to disclose. So that was the, one of the keys that you said, which is so important. That's, I remember when we worked on that legislation, we, we want to have the stick and the carrot. And the stick is if you have your data stolen or some unauthorized person gets that sensitive data with Social Security numbers and certain data, then you have to disclose. But the carrot was if you encrypt and use the best practices, then you don't have to disclose because it's protected. That's absolutely right. And we take that very seriously at Experian. We, we really treasure our relationships with our customers and the consumers at large. We take on that responsibility, I think, of custodians of their data to heart because all of us want to take good care of our own personal records. And we believe at Experian that we're handling personal records of most consumers out there. Your industry has a, basically regulations more than any other industry. It's not only a financial industry, but you're guided by the Fair Credit Reporting Act. So you have very strict mandates. So you have to do it more than maybe like, for example, some of the other data brokers that don't have financial information. They don't, they're not really subject to some of the things that you are. So it makes a lot of sense that you, you, you have a tough job. You really have a tough <laughs> All job. All right, you need don't to call you? my boss. Which is, I, gotta get, get I you think you need phone. a raise. Don't you think, Rick? I was thinking okay, the same let's thing put this listening to you there. But I do want to say that what you mentioned about Experian is very true. I mean, we are heavily regulated and we are required to meet a variety of frameworks and standards. But I think to me, that's a good thing. Yeah, it is. Because it provides a lot of exposure and attention on protecting data assets. And I am very... And if the system is going to be trusted, I mean, trust is a huge issue. If people know that their information is going to be protected they're going to feel safer and then they're going to trust that if they give their information to a, a credit card company that and the company gives it to the credit bureau, the only way the system is going to work is if they feel that the information is going to be protected, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, the fact that we're a data aggregator and we track behavior mm-hmm. um, is very important to the success of the company. And we have our senior management team is very much in favor and involved in our programs, which is fantastic. I'm, I'm very proud to say that. A lot of companies uh, don't have that uh, senior level buy-in, so sometimes it's a tough sell. Yeah, you, but when, especially around budget time. Yeah, <laughs> yes, because if you're And you thinking, mentioned that, that, hey, you know, you got to make sure that if you're in charge of security that the budget doesn't, that you get left out of the budget. The marketing gets the first budget, right? And and PR gets a budget, you get the budget, and, and then you have to say, wait a minute, is there any money left over for me? And what we like to practice is the, the sort of the idea of risk management yes. as opposed to risk avoidance. Risk management acknowledges that there's risks in almost everything we do. And what we, what we really believe our role is within the company is to point out, you know, what these risks are so that the business leaders can weigh these risks in with innovation or transformation or other business drivers to say, you know what, we're willing to step up and take that risk if we put these other mitigating controls in place mm-hmm. to minimize the impact of not having the most perfect solution here. Right, and or nothing's not perfect, right? I mean, everybody knows nothing's perfect. Even in our daily lives. I mean, right. it's risky to walk across the street. Exactly. But you exactly. weigh the risk of, should I wait until that light turns Red, or should I run across because my plane's leaving? Yeah. (laughs) I better look both ways. I'll take the risk. I'll look both ways, and I'll run.
Right. Otherwise, we'd never step out of our house even if we didn't take a risk, right? Right. Let me ask you one thing. You know, now there there is that whole issue of privacy versus security. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, and and a lot of the stuff when we talk about it, and we, we talked about that earlier with Emmy <coughs> about the fact that security is really important, and you can have security without privacy. You mm-hmm. can't have privacy really without security, but a lot of times privacy gets left out of the security. And I think when we were talking about segregating data, that's a privacy issue as much as it is a security issue. How does the security department work in interface with the privacy officer? You have a privacy officer, yes. right? We have a chief privacy officer. And what we do and what I make sure we do is whenever we're ready to release information out to the general public or to our clients, we engage our chief privacy officer to make certain that we're not violating any regulations or maybe industry best practices or even directives from the upper management experience. So she's very much involved in our conversation. So everybody, you know what they're doing and they know what you're doing? Yes, we, we do try to keep those lines of communication open because it is a, it's a tough job for the chief privacy officers as well. So right, right. They, they're they're begging up. for money, too, from the budget. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you I, know what's funny about that whole area, which I find interesting, is that the privacy concerns, I think, are being eroded by uh, tabloid journalism and things like that. Because as you see more and more people appearing on these reality shows oh, and seeing downloads sick, yeah. and paparazzi and all of that, the average citizen, believe it or not, I've read some surveys where they are now becoming desensitized, desensitized to privacy invasions because their own yeah. kids are putting in videos up on YouTube, for example. Right, right. So what I think it's because the kids don't realize the ramifications, what's going to happen later. And, and unfortunately, some of the parents don't even know what the kids are doing because they don't understand the technology. We're going through this paradigm shift that's really tough, I think. I think what's happening is, uh, and what we're all bring it back to, is I think in the area of privacy, when people don't really understand that if they put that bit of information about them, Uh, on YouTube or Facebook or MySpace that they work in a certain place or they live in a certain town or Or they hang out with people people. or they're drinking certain things. (laughs) Yeah, they don't understand that you can piece all of that disparate information together to create an insecure environment for yourself. Right. And we deal at our company with protecting people's data because of the financial impacts. Right. And you do have data aggregation and you do have the profiles and you do that so people can get a home you know, get a mortgage, get a job, get a student loan, or what all, all these things, so you know what that could be if, that, you know, if that's wrong. And fortunately, under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, if there is a mistake, they have an opportunity to change it, but you can't change that other stuff very easily when it's out there all over the place on the Internet. Yeah, and I just want to make something clear, though. We don't really aggregate any of the data that's out on those sites. Where I was going with that comment right, right. was that, an identity no, you only thief. do the, the, the financial information that's reported to yes. you. So let's and yeah. Yeah, our data furnishers <laughs> will provide yeah. us with okay. data that we uh, process and, right. and hold and analyze for them. But those other sources of information can be used by identity thieves right. to piece together information about somebody that would actually defraud them down the line. 
So, right. You know, there's there's issues like that. There's also personal. And we've actually issues. interviewed people that that has happened to on our on our radio show. So you're absolutely 100 percent right. It's kind so, of fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating and it's terrifying. At least I really like the fact that the Fair Credit Reporting Act allows us to find out about what financial information is being disseminated about us, so that we can make corrections, so we can know, so we can apply for that job or that loan, and at least know what's out there. What's scary for consumers is when, for example, you're applying for a job and they're going to Google you or they go to MySpace or uh, Facebook and their employers now are starting to do that. I don't know if you know that, but at least it's safer when they're getting your credit report. I just hired somebody new and I saw her credit report and that was, no, I had her permission and it was okay under the law. And at least I can look and see, is she really the person she says she is to verify identity? But when you go online and you go to Facebook and you want to see if you want to hire somebody, you, you might decide you might not want to hire them based on something that is really not fair to look at. So it's, it's scary stuff. That's scary. I agree. Okay, so I think I mentioned that 39 states have laws on the books. And uh, and we talked about our California law is really the was, leader. Was right? great. Also, we deal with a lot of laws outside of the country because we're a global organization. So that's exactly. also another dimension to what we do, and it's, and it's also very, very interesting. and Challenging because they challenging. have different laws. Yeah, different laws and different considerations. And it helps us improve our, you know, continually improve ourselves, even though maybe the American mm-hmm. culture doesn't require a certain safeguard you know, gives us an opportunity to look at what's out there globally, and maybe we want to prepare ourselves proactively. Uh, that would be great, you know, because I know the European Union has much more stringent laws with regard to sharing personal information, so it's kind of nice if, if you would bring up the bar, we would appreciate that. I would, as a <laughs> privacy person. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, another question I threw out was, how uh, are your service providers, customers, and business partners handling your data? Because a lot of us now in this uh, economy are either outsourcing or we have subcontractors or even with clients or customers we're sharing information with them that we use their input to create the products that we're building and Rick, that scares me to death it really scares me to death when I talk to somebody and they're outsourced and I know most companies are you know and I know the credit bureaus are doing it and I know that my credit card companies who were we on Office Depot the other day our order came wrong and we could not find anybody in the United States to help us and <laughs> you know the whole we had like three different orders that weren't even our orders and then to try and get on the phone luckily I speak Spanish fluently we ended up with somebody who was in Costa Rica I ended up, and I said I love Costa Rica, I made friends with her, and I was talking 100 miles an hour in Spanish, and I finally said, look, we've had so much problem, will you please get us somebody who's like an American on the line that's closer locally? She said, well, I can get you an American, she's right here, but she can help you, and finally, finally, I could get help. So I think that outsourcing is really challenging for a lot of Americans and then to think about what if it's outsourced in Pakistan or India where the laws aren't the same as ours so if somebody does steal it how do we even enforce it so how do you deal with that kind of security stuff Rick it's got to be tough. I'm so happy you asked me that question because (laughs) we're very proud of our program we actually very stringent security requirements for anyone that deals with our data on our behalf so if we in another country, you're in another country, yeah. or even or within our own country, sure, sure, it could be you know uh, Staples. 
and we might need to do ordering and we might have to transact business with them and to do that we need to share some say purchasing information or something. Right. So wherever uh, our data travels we're aware of where it's going. We watch our data throughout its life cycle from the time it's created to where it's transformed and then either exits our company or comes in back to us from one of our providers. But in the area of third-party uh, service providers, it's difficult to get real visibility into how they're actually handling the data that you're entrusting with them, unless you do audits and, and frequent right. uh, reviews. And what we do is we assess our third-party service providers through a, a lens of a very conservative approach. So we are able to go out to these service providers and either do assessments when it's called for because it's, say, highly confidential data, or we rely on ways to survey what they're doing. So we do have some controls in place that we're very happy with. Do you have Americans, like I know, I think you're in Canada, because I've spoken We're with in the, 60 countries. You're in 60 countries. So I understand that it saves money, and I understand that that's a good way to have a you know, global employment and all that stuff. But are there Americans on site that can help to kind of oversee this? I remember 60 Minutes did a thing on outsourcing and went oh, in for itself. outsourcing itself? Yeah, to show what was going on and what, what they, like, the people could never bring anything in with them. Yeah. I, and they could never take anything out with them. They, they were trying to show what was being done by, so, yeah, like what was being done by it. You yeah. Know, I, it's very difficult to answer that question because it's such a volatile question and okay. an emotional one for <laughs> okay. everyone. Okay. But I will say that in the uh, relationships that we have with outsourced service providers like technology vendors, for example, mm -hmm. whether they be in India or Ireland, it doesn't really matter. We do have the same controls and we have very strict requirements, uh, much like you would have in a call center, mm -hmm. where we do limit uh, the data that they can actually access we uh, monitor the authentication procedures that they use to get into the systems. We, in some cases, don't allow printers oh, good. On, the, mm -hmm. on the premises. And we have right, those because if somebody's calling in on a credit report, I know there's outsourcing when people have, for example, identity theft, and they call in with regard to the, the fraud that's on there. And, they, and after they set up a file, then they have a relationship that they can call in and talk to somebody a human being and sometimes they get these people who are not in the same country so that's what I think I worry about because if you have access to a credit report it has all of your sensitive information on there. Well I'll say that the technology service providers that we use have no access to credit reports. The fifth question out of my list of seven questions is around the comprehensive security standards that companies should have in place in order okay. to uh, ensure that they are protecting data in the way that they need to protect it. And we're talking about little companies, too, because even little companies who do work on the Internet, they could have huge databases of sensitive information, right? So it, does, it could be a mom-and-pop door or anything. Dry cleaners. Right. Restaurants. I mean, think of how many restaurants. Sole proprietor lawyers, <laughs> you know, accountants, right? Absolutely. And what I tried to convey today was it, even though there are some very good frameworks like the ISO 17799 framework. And so explain that because we have people who are driving by who, do, who may not know what that is. That's a framework that has been established as an internationally recognized framework that really isolates the security controls you need to put into your place around three topical areas. Physical security controls so that your environment is safe organizational security control so the people that you have employed understand what to do and then technical areas of control where you know your technology is controlled in a way 
And isn't that all on the Internet that they can actually look up all of the those standards? Yes, you can absolutely go and use our favorite tool, Google, right. and look up ISO 17799, and they'll get a, a lot of different um, research items about that framework. Yeah, and they can set up even if they're a small company. And if they're a small company, they may not want to do all the things that are being recommended, but it gives them an idea of what should be they should be considering, and then implement what makes sense for them. Right, but and depending on something. what kind of a company they are, they're going to be restricted by certain laws, whether it's if it's financial industry, it's the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act or, or SOX or Fair Credit Reporting Act. They have to also abide by whatever the standards are for safeguarding sensitive information. Question number six. Is the software code you're creating within your company or you've purchased from a vendor, has that code been reviewed for security vulnerabilities as part of a quality assurance process? You know, that was such a great question. It made me immediately think about when, I, when we know that Microsoft releases a new software and then we find out later that there's a hole or there's a patch or there's something you better download it. So even as consumers, we have to do that besides just companies, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's a perfect example. I mean, with the Microsoft proactive push-out of all the patches that they're doing to their own code, I think people should understand that the code they're creating probably has vulnerabilities as well. And they need somebody skilled in that area to, to point those out to them so they can patch their own software. So what happens now, your company is a big company. I mean, you're the head of the security, but you have a lot of people who are real high-techy people who can check all this. What do you suggest for a little company that, like me, I have a computer consultant that helps me with things and advises me, but he's not on, on a daily basis looking at this kind of stuff like you are. Yeah, most small um, companies don't have the luxury of having anyone right. in an IT sort of uh, job role. Right. So my suggestion would be stick to vendor products that you trust. Okay. So if you trust Microsoft and it's been working well for you, you know, stay with Microsoft. If you're an Apple computer user and the and materials coming from Apple are fine for you, do the same thing. When you need to do accounting and you're using QuickBooks or other products like that, trust that those vendors are patching their software in a way that will protect you. Right, and then also do your uh, updates. I know that my computer consultant yells at me and says, you know, Mari, you know, we have an automatic that automatically downloads and it'll say, your download, you were just updated on Microsoft or something. And you have to set that up. Yes, and, absolutely. And, and, you know, thank goodness he does that for me and he sets it up. So if you're listening and you don't have somebody to do that, you better learn how to set up your own automatic updates. Otherwise, you're going to have all these vulnerabilities that you were talking about. I would recommend getting yourself set so you'll get these automatic updates. I would also recommend that you go out and get a very good personal firewall, which you can get anywhere. Right. And they're not that expensive. And I would also recommend checking out uh, software that will protect you from spyware and adware. Yes. And those uh, also have the ability to update automatically on your home machines. And I would definitely do that. And then finally, I would back up whatever you have in the way yes. of documents regularly, oh, <laughs> weekly. Yeah. Because if you do ever have a system crash as a result of uh, a vulnerability that's been exploited, Right and you lose your data, that could really impact your business. Oh, I know. I update and I, uh, I do everything that you say, and I happen to have backup off the premises so that if there was ever a fire or an earthquake or something like that, I have all the stuff backed up off-site because it's too scary. Years ago, I had a crash, and I'll never forget that one. That was very time-consuming, very expensive. Of course, even getting insurance for, for backup is an important thing, too. I have that now, too. Once you have a, a crash like that... <laughs> 
then you know. But of course, security breach is a lot scarier. So I think you're right about doing the the anti-spyware because that I just got a call recently. You would you would get scared when you hear this. A businessman who told me that there was keylogging software that got into his system and took a hundred thousand dollars out of wow. his bank. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's there are a lot of stories like that. Interestingly enough, things like keyloggers not only track your passwords for uh, financial Bank, draining, yeah. you know, right. for theft. Right. They also are used for um, not so you know safe activities like stalking and things like that. Right. So you have to be very careful. And I don't want to alarm anybody unnecessarily, but I think if you do patch regularly, and you have a trusted package or two that you're using, you should be okay. And you back up your data regularly. You should be fine. And I would also suggest if you share your computer, uh, your, especially for work, that you put a user ID and password on it for the, your particular uh, session on that right. computer. So then you can re, uh, require authentication before anybody can access the files that you've put out there. Right. And for those people that work at home, it's extremely important because if you have three or four people sharing the same computer, it's very easy for your files to be corrupted. What do you suggest for companies that that have people working at home and they tap into the computer files at work? What do you suggest? Because that could be really a vulnerable situation. Well, actually, that's very well controlled. There are we uh, in, in our company, and I know many other companies have a very robust process in place that for at-home workers, we equip them with the software and hardware we'd like them to use. We image that software with products that we endorse. And we allow the connections only uh, from computers and devices that pass our through our authentication process. And you so, probably have very strict policies with regard to that as well. Absolutely. And I think most companies would in that situation. It's the smaller companies that aren't as vigilant because they don't really know about all the dangers they have to work You know, to it's, about. it's so hard for small companies. And we were talking recently that I think 70% of all the companies in America are really small companies, small to mid-sized com- companies. I mean, we think of, you know, Experian and Visa and all these big companies, but really and truly, when you think of all the companies in the United States, a lot of them are, are small to middle-sized companies that don't have the, the people like you who are the real gurus of this to really understand it. And then when you think about the consumers, you know, I, I don't consider myself a techie, but I look at people around me, and I'm, like, brilliant compared to them, you know. <laughs> and, and, you know, I feel pretty good that I can do the programs that I do and what I, and, and I know to back up and I know to have all the security measures. But, you know, I, I think it's overwhelming for people because this is what you do for a living. I mean, you live this, you eat this, you know this. But everyone else who's trying to do their own job, like I'm trying to be a lawyer and do this, or you're trying to be an, uh, a doctor and do these things, it's, it's hard. That's exactly the point of my whole conversation today. Yeah. Because what I tried to impart to the audience today was, you know, don't let it overwhelm you. And it does. It I'm, does. Try to work to the point where good is good enough for you. I mean, if you're an attorney primarily and you have four or five products that you need to use every day and you have to follow certain procedures to get your work done, Ensure that those four or five products get you what you need to get done and also protect you adequately for what you're working on. Right. But don't, you don't necessarily have to feel inadequate or exposed. 
because there are so many things that you get from the media every day about all these crazy shenanigans that are going on. I hear a lot about identity theft, so of course I'm probably more paranoid than most people who are listening to this. I double worry about how am I protecting my my clients and my customers and my databases and everything. I mean, it's it's on my mind. The one thing I do want to clarify, because I think it's a common misconception, when there are data breaches or something like uh, a data breach occurs where there's a disclosure letter that you as a consumer may receive yes. that says that we believe that your data has been compromised. Yes, it's been acquired by an unauthorized person, right. Unauthorized person. And I know this is a fine point, but I think it's important to raise it. From my perspective, you aren't really the victim of an identity thief yes. at that point. Right. You may never become. You may never become uh, a victim. And I think there's a distinction to be made because the fact that all of our data, for example, has been compromised or exposed to the wild doesn't mean anybody can actually use it. For example, from the Experian perspective, if 40,000 people from a particular store uh, had their identities uh, compromised, only those people that satisfied the criteria of the ID thief would actually be potential victims. And of those potential victims, not everybody can be victimized because maybe they have poor credit. Let me kind of clarify my perspective on yeah, that. Is, is If there's a breach, like, for example, the TJ Maxx that everybody talked about, a lot of that was really only credit card numbers, not Social Security numbers. So if your credit card is used for fraud, it's a form of identity theft, but it's credit card fraud. And it isn't like somebody's taken over your whole identity. So we have to kind of talk about degrees of danger. If your credit card is stolen and you get a letter that your credit card numbers were stolen along with your name, watch your credit cards bills, and as soon as you see something, cancel your card. However, if there is a security breach where you get a letter from the state of California and says something like, this is from the Franchise Tax Board and your social security number and other all your sensitive data was taken, that's a different story. You have to take it really seriously. You need to put on fraud alerts, maybe even a credit freeze on your credit profile and take it much stronger. So, you know, what I hear from law enforcement, and I just did a program for the governor just recently, and there were a lot of law enforcement and DAs in that conference, and it was on identity theft. And they say, a lot of them said that they're finding now that a lot of victims, their information was stolen maybe four years ago, and they, these criminals, hold this stuff six months, ten months, a few years before they use all this. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I want to kind of come in between what you're saying and what I'm saying is that if it's just credit card stuff, you know, cancel the card if you're worried, but it's not, you don't have to go crazy. But if it's social security number with other sensitive information, you better take it real seriously. I don't mean to imply that you don't take it seriously. I think you raise some excellent points, though, especially uh, around the... Um, Using it later, yeah, because that's what we call that. Because what happens is most people that are sophisticated in the ID theft uh, arena will bank your information, Mm -hmm. and they won't use it for a minimum of maybe 18 months. And they'll sell it. They'll sell it to someone else. In fact, they there was a whole article about how they will sell that information in jail even. They share that information. So, you know, it could happen. And and the other thing is that I hear, and that you guys probably wouldn't hear an experience, but I hear about people getting their identity stolen to commit crimes. I hear about their identity stolen to get 
governmental benefits to to work under somebody else's name and not even pay your bills to the IRS, you know, pay your, your taxes. I hear about people using identity to get workers' comp to uh, use your identity. Somebody could take your business card and say that they're, they're Rick, you know? Or, and I, that, that is what happened to me. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot of other types of identity theft other than the, na- you know, financial identity theft. If you think about the 9-11 terrorists who were able to use ident- false identities to get into the country, to get a pilot's license and all that stuff. So, so yes, identity theft for financial fraud will appear on your credit report, but the other kinds won't until Absolutely. it goes into collections or something. Like, you know, I if there's that, a, yeah. That's a fantastic point to make. Right. So did we get through all seven questions? I think we got through all, through all seven well, I uh, had questions. more questions for you because you're such a guru and a techie. I love it. Okay. So if, if you were advising um, a small company, what would you be telling them in terms of, of protecting the data, in terms of a security system? How would, they, how, how would you tell them? First and foremost, I would suggest that they get a handle on what kind of data they're collecting and what kind of data they're um, sending out. Okay. And once they get a handle on that kind of data, analyze the data to figure out, is any of that data considered confidential data? If it's not confidential data, then they probably have a, a better time of it. But if that data is considered confidential or restricted, then they would be subjected to the encryption requirements and other things that, as we've discussed earlier, are part of the regulations. So uh, what do you think about, for, for example, small companies, how difficult is it really to encrypt? You're asking the wrong person because I do it all the time <laughs> and every day. So for me, it's very easy. But okay. I, I think the true test is uh, if you were to think about WinZip. I don't know if people use WinZip files, but when you want to, sh- you know, a condensed file. Put a bunch file, of stuff into a little small. Yeah, yeah. WinZip 11.0 or higher okay. has built-in encryption that you can use. And it's extremely easy to use. And I would suggest right out of the gate if people wanted to try their hand at encrypting anything that they currently store on their system or send to someone in an email. Right. They should attach uh, an encrypted, WinZipped file, and they've done it. Okay, very. And, that, and you can use uh, WinZip, for example. I hate to be a spokesperson. No, that's for okay. We're not. But, we're not a commercial for WinZip. Okay. <laughs> uh, but you can take common uh, software products like Microsoft uh, Excel, Microsoft PowerPoint, Microsoft Documents. Right. And you can WinZip and encrypt them. Okay. So our suggestion. So before they just send out documents that, that I get like all the time that I I go crazy. I I password protect everything that I send out with, you know, through Microsoft, which is it's it's a form of encryption, but it's probably not as strong as the WinZip, huh? WinZip is a very uh, robust it encryption is. algorithm. They use both 128 byte encryption and 256. Okay. And okay. you can choose. It actually has a little wizard that says, you know, how strong do you want to make this? Good. The one uh, recommendation I'll make, though, if you do encrypt a document of some sort and you send it to somebody and they need a password to open it. You have to call them and tell them. <laughs> call them. <laughs> That's what I do. Or send a separate email, but we tell people really yeah, don't even use collect, email. Yeah. You try I, to call them. I do that with my clients. I, I encrypt the attachments and then I call them and tell them. And I usually use 12 number letters 
or you know figures that I that I mix up and I tell them and I make up something and then I go you know this is this is to undo this but I'm not going to give it you an email because I'm afraid that if somebody aggregates those emails and they that's they absolutely can, right yeah yeah and I think that would be go a long way to protecting people uh, in small businesses the other thing I'd yes. like to bring out is um, make sure that if they're using fax machines or printers yes they're not leaving things hanging around that oh, as soon yeah. as they're finished with copying or faxing something shred it. Yes, I'm the shredding queen. Yes, I, I do that all the time. Okay, so let's ask, what should be done if you if you do experience a security breach? I recommend a, a few things. First of all, uh, each company should have some semblance of an incident response plan yes. handy. So they already have uh, prepared for the event of a, of a breach that would require a disclosure uh, to the extent that they would have names and... Uh, Social security numbers. Well, what, where I'm going with this oh. is if you have an incident response plan, you'll already have an outline of the steps you need to take. Right. And one of the steps you really need to take is control all communication related to that breach so that only your attorney or someone that's designated as the head of that company or group is the uh, voice for you. And you have one person to um, interface Speak to with the, the media. media. Yeah, if it's a yeah, if it's a big breach. Yeah. Yeah, even if it's a small company like a small print house or you know a dry cleaners or whatever right. it may be, they really should just have one person speaking to the press and to the regulators. You know, if if you experience a breach in the state of California, we have some guidelines at privacy.ca.gov. That's the Office of Privacy Protection has created. Because you know they they have recommended practices for a security breach, and they have created letters that that you can just use and and put you know kind of like cut and paste sort of templates uh, templates right, and give you some ideas of steps to take to help you as well. So that's that's a good place to go for it's privacy. A fantastic resource. Yeah. Yep. And then I think part of that notifying of the data owners, make sure that if your small business does business in more than one state that you understand if there are different requirements state to state. Yes, because we were talking that there's 39 states with 39 different security breach laws, although California's is, um, I think, one of the, well, one of the best because we're California, but it also um, really is a little bit more complex than some of the others and, and allows for uh, that, that carrot of if you encrypt. I think there's a couple states that say even if you encrypt, you have to. Am I correct? Well, it's moving in that direction. Yes. It doesn't matter if you've encrypted it or not. And yeah. the other thing that's interesting is uh, some state regulations are now expanding what they consider personal information. Oh. So uh, California has a very sort of narrowly defined we have a list. Yes. Mm -hmm. List. Other states are adding things like date of birth, mother's maiden name, right. um, things that would be uh, where a thief would be able to reconstruct your identity. Right, and I tell people never use your mother's maiden name as a password ever, 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 ever. Make up a, a you know a specific password because your mother's maiden name is everywhere. It's on your birth certificate, which is on the internet. So, <laughs> another interesting tip to pass on to people listening is uh, when they are uh, setting up authentication challenge responses to oh, questions yes. that are being asked of them yes. online. Yes. A lot of people like what? Are, what was your elementary school or something like yeah, that? Who was questions. your first teacher? Yeah. What's your dog? I like name? those. Those are great. But not your dog, because anybody, a lot of your neighbors may know your dog. 
Well, the thing to do, the thing to remember is they're there for a reason. A lot of people think that's annoying to have to suffer through that. I love them. I think that's so great. But what happens in a lot of cases is somebody will actually put the same response to all the questions. Oh. So that's a common ploy oh. that ID thieves know how to defeat your authentication because they understand if they get it once, they can oh. use that same answer. So that's yeah. another thing that we watch out for. That's not good. Yeah. The problem is if, if they ask you, what, what is your husband's mother's name? And then if you were married five or ten times, you have a problem on <laughs> <laughs> that one. <laughs> yeah, that would be a tough one to answer. Right. So you have to say, what was your first, you know, ask him to say, what was your first husband's mother's name? <laughs> and believe it or not, even those questions have evolved. Yes. They used to be a lot more um, centered around you as an individual that, that other people could glean from public records. Oh, uh-huh. And now they're more into... Uh, things from your anecdotal past. Right. I like that. You know, rather than sometimes it's even scary, like who who is um, your first cousin or something. You know, a lot of those people put those. Um, what do you call that? They they. You know, when they when they your uh, your genealogy, they oh, go yeah. to these genealogy sites. In fact, I've had people who run. I've had a couple people from genealogy sites write to me and ask for advice on how to do this without causing identity theft because they some of them have gotten complaints about identity theft from that. Well, you know, it's interesting. You can't really do much with the name. But if you have the name, and as we spoke about earlier, you can link the name to MySpace, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, yes. any of those social networking Google. sites. Google. Just start, start Googling somebody. You can start getting pieces of information that you might be able to construct an ID with. It's not as easy as if you just went out and no, but I Googled you and found out more about you than you thought I'd known. I'm sure you could do the same thing with me. I mean, people will say to me, oh, I Googled you and I, and I saw this or I saw this article. And they're seeing articles that, that I didn't even know that I was quoted in. You know? So it's, it's, it is a bit scary. So um, are, are companies experiencing more breaches than in the past? Or, is it, or do you think it's just because of our security breach legislation? Do you, what do you think? My opinion is no. I think no, it, it, no, we are not experiencing more, or maybe slightly more. But I, I think uh, what you said at the end of your question about the legislation and regulations maybe driving the disclosures, which right. give the appearance that we're in, in this era of um, people that are losing information left, yeah. right, and center. I don't really think it's I, as, I don't either. as dire as it might appear. I you think, know, I testified in Congress. Um, and I think it was in uh, 2006. And when I testified, on one side of me was ChoicePoint, on the other side of me was Axiom, and then Epic. And it was, and we were talking, and and the senators asked them, "Did you have security breaches before 2003?" You know, and Axiom had one where there were a million data files with sensitive information that was accessed by unauthorized persons. So, you know, um, it. The security breach legislation really, I think, has driven companies to be more accountable because now they have to disclose. So they either have to take best practices and encrypt or they're going to have to disclose. And I think um, I think it's been good, but we I don't think it's really that much more. If anything, it's probably less. Yeah, I <laughs> probably think people are a lot more conscious of, of their behaviors around protecting data. Right, right. So what are the common types of data breaches that companies are dealing with today? I would say the most common one you hear about 
uh, involves uh, loss or theft of some kind of device that contains data. Like, like a laptop. We hear about laptops more than anything else, right? Laptops have hit the news um, in recent months, and, and it seems like that's a, a situation that's going to keep reoccurring. The good news, though, is there are a lot of products now available out in the marketplace that can help you secure your laptop so that even if it is lost or stolen, um, you know, it's very hard to break into it. Right, right. I know last year we interviewed, and we're going to probably talk to him again, is uh, Michael Willett from Seagate. They have a, a uh, hard drive that's encrypted automatically. And so even if you take that hard drive out, it's still encrypted. So that's great. And, you know, I think a lot of the new technology is also, we were talking to someone else earlier about how if something is stolen, you can actually have it immediately erased before they can use the, the product. So like that, digital rights management, Yes, for yes, yeah. You know, and then the other area I think that's uh, popping up are uh, devices that are attached to your laptops that you lose, like USB drives oh, those or are, PDAs or those Blackberries. Are the, yeah, yep. And again, there are vendor products out there now that will help you encrypt that information so it does become useless if somebody finds the device. Of course, they get the device, but they can't access the data. Right. So you really have to keep up with the newest devices. For example, like, you know, the old PDAs that people would put everything and their brother on it and they couldn't encrypt it very easily. So now you almost have to, like, every two years get get new Blackberries, new PDAs, new everything to be encrypted, Right. Sort I mean, of, you know, yes I and mean, no, really. a little bit. But I think what happens is, as um, as we talked about uh, today during the keynote, as transformations occur in the business, they also bring these new opportunities for um, data protection. Right. So as a device is rolled out that provides more robust functionality, like, right. for example, the iPod right. or the, the, say, BlackBerry, which right. not only lets you do an email but answer the phone and everything else. I know. You'll get embedded with that. Uh, some protections, but there's also other protections other vendors will provide to you that you can buy. But it's See, a good that's question why, that's to ask. Why, that's, that's so good why we have, I mean, people say, oh, we don't want all this regulation, but in effect, some of this regulation, like the security breach legislation, um, has really, I think, spiked security products in terms of really com competition to have better security products, don't you think? I absolutely think so. I mean, uh, what's interesting to me is when I was in college, which was, you know, just a couple Ten of years, years ago, ago. Five years ago? Yeah, three, four years ago. <laughs> um, they used my Social Security number as my college ID, and we had uh, a situation where in the town where I went to college, you could use your college ID to buy anything you wanted because they would charge it back to the school. And I had to chuckle because I was reading an article in uh, CSO Magazine, I think it was this month, about uh, a college kid from the 70s or 80s who actually would order pizza with his social security number and they would build a college on his Listen, uh, it's not plan. even that long ago. My son went to Duke and his little, he, he would put money on this little card that he didn't have to carry a wallet with him. He would just take his card everywhere on the campus and be able to go to the bookstore or go to the commissary or whatever. It was his social security number. Only in the last, I think, what was it like? Let's see, my daughter, I'm trying to think. The University of California used the social security number as the number, but we had a series of secu uh, social security legislation in the state of California that actually said that no school, uh, no n private or public, could use the social security number as the ID number 
because of that. So, you know what? It's only been recently because my daughter's only 22, and, and they were using her first and second year in college. They were using her Social Security number at, UC, at the University of California in Santa Cruz. So and the reason it, I bring that me up. Me too. Me too. Yeah, I mean, and the reason it, it, I bring that up is because we are socially engineered to give away our personal sensitive information without even blinking. Right. As adults, say, and then maybe some of our kids are in, in the same situation because they don't understand there's something they need to protect because, of course, it's their student ID. Right. In the state of Connecticut, when I uh, lived in Connecticut, it was our driver's license number. Uh, I know. That that has changed in a lot of places. Yeah, it's changed in Connecticut, fortunately. It's changed in Hawaii. And, it, you know, now some states, I think it's um, Missouri, still has it. You can ask for an alternate number. Isn't that ridiculous? But look at this. The military number, the military ID for our grandson in the Air Force is the Social Security number. That's what's on their dog tags. The, the Medicaid number, the Medicare number. So we, Diane Feinstein from the state of California is trying to get that changed in federal law. It is absolutely ludicrous. Why do they need to use that number, which, of course, is the key to the kingdom of identity theft? Well, you know, five, ten years ago, even if they had your number, mm -hmm. they couldn't do anything with it, really, because the identity thieves didn't, they weren't. Well, credit is driven. Yeah, credit is driven by that. It, it, it's incredible. It's incredible. Well, let me let me ask you a little bit about Experian. What what is um, what are some of the products that that consumers and businesses can use that Experian is trying to put out there? I'll give you a little bit of a uh, <laughs> time to plug Experian. A little bit of plug because Lloyd says we only have five minutes. So I'm gonna. You've been so good to share. We're gonna let you plug a little bit here. Well. <laughs> Uh, what I'll say in that few minutes we have left is that we do have a, a variety of products that will help both consumers and businesses protect against things like identity theft. But um, I would really suggest that people take advantage of products like that because it really does make the job of monitoring your credit information and your ID uh, and the possibility of ID theft much, much easier. What do you have for, for businesses? What kind of uh, products do you have that protect security for businesses? We have an authentication product. Um, that w that's called Precise ID, which oh, uses, it's mm -hmm. more or less a platform of uh, functionality that will allow people to um, be authenticated to the point where you can trust that they are who they say they are before they access your data. How does it work? Do you know? I'm not all that familiar with the actual workings of the product, but okay. if you go to the Experian.com website and okay. you do a search on Precise ID, okay. you could be able to find some good information. So what do you think as, as a security guru, how do, you, how do you see the job of the security guru in the next five years? Well, now you sound like my college professor. <laughs> I don't know. No. See, I do teach at UCI, so I know. I know, I know, I know. Okay. Well, you know, truthfully, I think the role that I have today and roles similar to the role that I have are going to evolve into more of a collaborative business function. Mm. They, we all grew up... Uh, from the technology perspective, from either being application developers or network and infrastructure people or people associated with technology. And then we kind of grew in to these roles we have today from those backgrounds. I have a varied background, uh, business and in other things I've done over my career. So I've, I've saw the Yeah, you have a law degree too, right? Well, I've been to, uh, you know. Law school? Okay. Yeah, and I sold Italian ice and everything else, but I'm not <laughs> gonna put that in the mix. But where I'm going with the comment is I think that the value in this role really is as a trusted advisor to the business leaders. 
Right. And I think what really is important is uh, for anybody out there that would be interested in a job like the one I have is to really get comfortable with how business works and how innovation drives success. Get an MBA too, huh? I would say focus on how what you can bring to the table from a security perspective will shore up what the business leaders need to accomplish to meet their bottom line. Well, let me ask you one other question then too. We're sitting here, or not, we're, we're sitting here in Irvine, but this is going to be played at the University of California, Irvine, where we have our show. We have a, a, you know, lots of wonderful students there who are techies. What would you say that, um, you know, what would you, if, what would you say to someone who wanted to be hired? What kind of things are, do you look for in hiring somebody in the security field? My person, speaking just for myself and the people yes. that, have I, that I've hired, I look for people that can communicate extremely well. And that like are, you. You're good. You're <laughs> articulate. Thank you. Um, my mother will be very proud if yes, she hears we'll, this. Yes, we'll send it to her. I'm definitely going to send it to her. <laughs> um, but I think you have to be very articulate and very focused on the job you do and how your uh, abilities impact the organization. And you got to be a team player. Team player, and you have to have a great personality and, and you build gotta, relationships. And you got to be a mediator so that you can, and a negotiator, so you can get money, budget, budget money to get your Demonstrate work done. Demonstrate value. That's right, right. Well, we think you're wonderful, and I'm so glad that we got to have you right here with us. And you, can, you, okay, you have been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. We have been interviewing Rick D'Angona, CSO Information Security Officer for Experian right here. And we ask that you join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI.org, 88.9 FM in Irvine. And please visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can download our podcasts. You can listen to our archived interviews and see our upcoming guests in their bios. Thank you very much, Lloyd, and have a good evening. Hope you'll join us next Wednesday. Good night. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs right here on KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. It airs every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. I'm also the host of Sheriff Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips, and I'm so privileged to bring back to us for this segment Lieutenant Mike Betzler. He has been with the Orange County Sheriff Department for 26 years, and he is Chief of Police Services in San Juan Capistrano, right near where our office is in Laguna Niguel. So we're so thrilled to have you back. How are you doing? Uh, thanks, Maria. It's uh, good to be back. So last week we talked about some very interesting scams, but this week we're going to talk about traffic safety because that is such a huge issue. We, an accident can ruin a person's life or actually take a person's life, and we've all been worried about accidents. So what's going on with traffic safety? 
Well, thanks, Mari. I, uh, our roadways in South Orange County are very safe, but at the same time, we're constantly working to make them even safer. Some of the things I would encourage your listeners to do is uh, check out some of the new laws that are coming into effect. I think one of the most important one identifies a safety trend that we've seen that distracted drivers are becoming almost as dangerous as drivers under the influence. And uh, a new law that's a uh, 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 signed to go into effect July 1st of 2008 is one that restricts drivers from utilizing handheld cell phones and communication devices while they drive. Drivers over the age of 18 must use a wireless uh, telephone and drivers under the age of 18 are not even allowed to talk with a hands-free device. I see people with cell phones talking and it drives me <laughs> crazy. They're trying to park and they got their hand on one cell phone and the other hand on the wheel trying to turn. It's, it's insane. Now, also, tell us about the red light cameras. That's something that I think is a little scary for us, thinking about Big Brothers watching us at red stop at the red lights. Uh, I know that red light cameras have been somewhat controversial, but it's not really new technology. Traffic studies have shown that traffic accidents are reduced by about 40% at intersections utilizing the red light camera technology. You know, and those type of uh, broadside impacts that we might see in an intersection are ones that typically uh, uh, where drivers and passengers aren't protected by engineered crumple zone seat belts and airbags like rear end or head-on collisions. I think that uh, although no, red light cameras are not necessarily the magic bullet, I think in a comprehensive traffic safety program, they do have a, a place in our um, traffic safety efforts. You know, I think that's a great idea, to, to be honest with you, because I've seen people go through red lights, and when I hesitate and they go through the red light, I think, oh, my God, I just saved my life or my family's life. So you're right. I think it makes some good sense, too. So thank you so much again for joining us, and we will talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me, Mark. Okay, bye-bye. 